0: Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining me on First Responder Psychological Support Podcast. This is season one, episode two, and I am Sarah Gura. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology, and I am a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois. I am trained in EMDR, I'm also a yoga teacher, and my private practice is the self care path in Burridge, Illinois, where I treat first responders. Today's topic is from a portion of a class that I teach. The class is called Introduction to First Responder Behavioral Health. I'm going to cover some of the basics as far as a little bit of history and a vocabulary that I like first responders to use. In the field of psychological support for first responders, I think it's smart and necessary for all of us to have a common language about psychological support or peer support or any kind of mental health topic when it comes to first responders. So we're going to start and cover that today and then I will continue on for about three or four more podcasts uh, to cover the entire introduction class. But first, uh, as always, I want to remind you to ground yourself and to just take a nice, deep breath, expanding the chest. And when you exhale, just let your body relax and get comfortable. If it's appropriate, again, close your eyes and just notice your breath for a moment as you pull those shoulders down and away from your ears and straighten your spine. Again, I like to always make a connection that the mind and body are connected, and that, you know, we respond sometimes subconsciously to what we're thinking, and it affects our body and the tension that's in our body. And of course, vice versa, if something is going on in the body, it can definitely affect the mind. So we want to notice that connection and see if we can get ourselves nice and comfortable. So... The first thing that I want to address as you get comfortable is that behavioral health truly is an occupational issue. I like to share that back when 9 11 happened, that's when we really noticed that we do not take care of first responders. Uh, A lot of people needed support and we just didn't have it there. And so the response was okay. We're going to get a bunch of professionals together. We're going to write the white papers. And on the fireside, they created the 16 life safety initiatives. And those initiatives created this idea that, well, you got to wear your seatbelt now. You're going to have after action reviews. You're going to have to put your SCBA on. You know, there are all these standards for how are we just going to make it safer. And I love that. But of all the 16, life safety initiatives, I always say that number 13, ironically, number 13, maybe, was the redheaded stepchild of them all. And it was firefighters and their family members must have access to counseling and psychological support services. Now, we can expand that, you know, maybe even just for this podcast to say all first responders should have access to counseling and psychological support services. But what we did back in the day, and what we still do, is we slapped an EAP phone number on that. So to fulfill that initiative, they counted on companies, right, to fulfill that service. And we saw the 1-800 numbers posted in the bathrooms of, you know, the police department or the fire departments. And some people actually did call it, you know, as I went... Through my experience of being a first responder therapist, especially in the beginning, some of the guys would say to me, You know, if this doesn't work out, I'm done with counseling. It was a crazy amount of pressure. They had said that they had been to EAP, they had been to other counselors before, and they just weren't experiencing a sense of being helped. So that kind of put a bad taste for psychology, you know. for for all the first responders, or many of them. Other times, the departments use the EAP for a punishment. So if there was something going on, because we don't have a behavioral health policy, they were told, well, you need to go to the EAP, and you would be put under supervisory review. And that person, the counselor from the EAP office may or may not, usually did not, know anything about your career or the culture or what was going on. And so again, it just kind of felt uncomfortable. Why am I going to open up to this person who doesn't even understand my job? And I heard about that a lot. It was almost like a fight I was engaged in to convince people like, hey, not all counselors are bad. And some therapy truly does help. Um, But as time went on, I think people learned to be even more quiet. They were pretty quiet before. But with this EAP program and a supervisory review, and a chance that the department lawyer would mandate some sessions or something like this, people were feeling pretty uncomfortable. And so, I definitely have always wanted to shift it into a more peer support culture because I'm a therapist, and if work sent me to EAP or if work asked me, Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? I don't know if I would really answer that honestly. You know, I'm not going to say, well, you know, I'm having an affair, thinking about shooting myself, I drink too much, the usual. Like, no, nobody's going to say that. So we have to create a culture. And when you create a culture, you need language to talk about the first responder experience when it comes to mental health, behavioral health, psychological well-being, all these things. And... Of course, you know if you get to that point where something's very severe, you you have to just explicitly use the language and talk to someone that can help. But for the most part, the way to prevent some of the things getting to that point will be that we have a safe culture within the first responder world to talk about the mental behavioral health psychological issues. So it is everyone's responsibility, right? So from probie to chief, we need to be talking about first responder behavioral health. And that is because it is a safety necessity and value. Now, I know that you might have to every other year, or maybe it's every year at your department, go to the department doc and they're going to check your heart, your ears, your eyes, you know, make sure that you're physically healthy. You might have to do a fit test or walk on a treadmill or do a plank or whatever, but we don't ask How are you doing? And once again, it's because I don't think you guys would answer, honestly. Uh, It's too scary. It's too risky. We don't have a policy that says, well, this is what we're going to do if you say this or that. But we certainly have a policy for what happens if you're high blood pressure or if you have some other physical issue. So I am a huge advocate for creating a behavioral health policy. Uh, But again, it's really scary and nobody wants to commit to that quite yet. But it is and it would be there to protect you. And in a future podcast, I'll be talking a whole lot about first responder behavioral health policy. Um, But I want to move on and talk about four categories of issues that have not changed for me over the last 11 plus years in dealing with first responders. And the first one, of course, is we are still... Trying to understand how to prevent suicide ideation, suicide attempts, and the completions of suicides for first responders. And I know that I rely heavily on Jeff Dill of Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance to tell us, you know, what is actually and really going on because he tracks all those firefighter suicides nationwide. And what we see of course is that you are more likely to die by suicide than you are a line of duty death and you guys are all about safety you're always preaching safety what's the safest way what's the protocol what's the SOP or SOG for this and that and yet the thing that's most likely to kill you you have no policy for you have no prevention training and uh I think it should be in your ATPs, your annual training plans. I think it should be discussed and talked about professionally. And once again, when it comes to psychological support, uh, we shy away from it. And if we don't shy away from it, in my opinion, Illinois is damn near hostile about it and completely unethical, which that's another future topic I'll be talking about um, because for the last you know 11 years again i have just witnessed a lot of investigations arbitrations court cases and things like this that um make me very sad i'll put it i'll put it that way but the other thing that i see is of course destructive behaviors uh first responders when they are upset and they're not feeling good they get destructive and there's anger there's drinking there's zoning out in video games for hours and hours Uh, there's going on golf outings or staying away from home and isolating yourself. There's just these behaviors that are counterproductive to what it is they really want to have in their life. Uh, But a lot of it is because they're not sure how to cope. The other thing that I see is mental health issues becoming physical health issues, even physical pain issues or injuries. And What's sad about this is you're, you don't listen to your body until the second or third alarm goes off, as I like to say. Guys will come in and tell me, you know, I have migraines, I have this stomach problem, I feel shortness of breath in my chest, and we've ruled out all these physical health issues. And the other thing that I've seen is, of course, as we do the counseling, as we do the therapy, a lot of those physical health issues get relieved And so I can't help but notice the connection of the mind and body and to know that when you're constantly dumping cortisol and stress hormones and other junk into your body because the sympathetic nervous system is just activated constantly, you are going to create this inflammation in your body. And of course, we know that inflammation causes disease. And so as you age and as you approach retirement and in retirement, some first responders find their mind and body not prepared to enjoy life, even though they spent their whole life fantasizing that someday they would be happy and that someday should be in retirement, and then it comes and it doesn't feel that great. So we need to start talking about that as well. And then, of course, the actual on-the-job errors that I see, that's the fourth issue. I have a group of guys who, again, I would call high functioning. Sometimes they are perfectionists. They don't want to do any harm. They want to be of service. Again, they're helpers, rescuers, savers, and protectors. And yet, when they make an error on the job, and I talk to them about that, like, how could this happen? You know, uh, just your baseline, usually, probably, wouldn't allow that. And that's when they say something like, man, Sarah... I'm going through a divorce, or my kid just got on an IEP, was taking medication. My mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, I'm so busy, my dad can't cut his own lawn anymore, so I'm going over there and cutting his grass and cutting my grass. And you just can hear all the different ways that they are taking care of everyone but themselves. And then all of a sudden, somebody is parking in an ambulance, and the door was open, and they blow that door off. Or You know, I've heard of pushing IM instead of IV or giving the wrong dose of medication or overreacting on a scene and using more force than what's needed. And we know that the use of force is ugly and sometimes very necessary. And other times it's been an opportunity to ventilate. So we need to take a look at the on the job errors, too, because sometimes that's the first sign or symptom that someone isn't doing well. I also want to talk about this idea, you know, the the vocabulary, the first vocabulary word is the idea of potentially traumatic events. So again, shortly after 9-11, they came up with this term, this is not my term, PTEs, or potentially traumatic events, highlight this idea that any call and any experience at work can be or can become traumatic to one person. But not another person. So there's this perspective and diversity and response that we must respect. And I will be explaining why and how this happens so that you can accept this truth and reality for sure. Um, But the other term that I want to share with you is a term that I call sickness. And I say with all the love in my heart that first responders are sick. (laughs) And that's S I C without the K. And it stands for Spontaneous Intrusive Cognitions. And that came from a ride-along that I went on on Ambulance 10 in Chicago. I believe it was in 2013 or so. So it was a while ago. But that was a really wild ride-along for me. And a woman gave birth that morning. Um, There was some major violence, a machete to the head. There was a sexual assault. We had all kinds of you know, addicts overdosing, and we were shoving Narcan up people's noses. And it was very intense for me as we were driving around in that ambulance. I remember the paramedic talking to me about so many other things that had happened in that city that he attended to, you know, from a stabbing to a terrible car accident and how many people had died in a particular building that we were looking at. And when he pointed out another building and said, you know, this is that bipolar lady that doesn't ever take her medication. You'll probably see her around dinner time." I remember thinking, I don't want to meet a bipolar today. (laughs) Like what we've done is enough, you know. And he just kept talking and talking. And he said, well, Sarah, you know, when I see a white cross, I don't see a white cross there. I see who died. And when I go through this intersection, I think of this car accident. And when I see that building all boarded up, I remember the header. I knew we weren't going to save anybody that day. And I realized, like, wow, you really look at the world differently than I do. You know, when I drive through a town, I see or I'm looking for, where's the Target and where's Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, you know? And I I don't, I didn't see those types of things. I didn't have that sickness, of course. Um, over time, as as a first responder therapist, sometimes now when I go through a city, I go, oh, that's where that suicide was, or that's where that shooting was. Or I drive into a town and I'm like, oh, that's where this fire happened. And so that sickness is very real. It could be just passing through your mind and you, you don't even notice it, well, you know, or you do notice it and it adds up. Um, certainly your spouse may not know at all that that's what's on your mind when you're crossing that space but it's definitely a a term that's trying to identify or validate that this particular experience of just looking at the world a little differently because of your exposure so speaking of your exposure i like to talk about your job description for just a moment and I know it says beautiful things on that village paper you know or your city paper it says something like You're a public servant and you're here to rescue and save and protect and do all these, you know, fabulous things. But as the therapist that treats first responders, you've heard me say before, if you listen to my first podcast, that your job description is human illness, human suffering, human death, human stupidity, human stupidity, and sometimes more human stupidity. Sometimes I can't believe Uh, the shit that people do. But on top of all that, then property destruction. And of course, now we're asking you to handle spotlights and criticisms and do it well without responding or reacting in anger and frustration. So the job description itself is pretty intense when we look at what are you actually doing for a 20-plus year career. And we all know those tier two guys uh, have a longer job right? A longer stay or tour with the police and fire departments. So the exposure to all this chaos and all the egos in the world is pretty intense, it's frequent, and it has a long duration. And so what I want to do is go right from that to some suicide psych education. Because again, this is, you know, what's happening and what seems to be the the biggest danger in your lives in your career lives so what I have learned to do is to divide suicide ideation into four parts because nobody was admitting that they were suicidal they wouldn't talk about it they thought if I tell Sarah this then I'm going to be hospitalized and that's going to mess up my job and they're going to think I'm crazy and that's not the scoop we're not going to take your FOI card away but what happens here in first responder world is I have to take a look at where's the risk. And I'm going to share how I look at the risk with you. So the first level for me of suicide ideation is called a suicide fantasy. So the suicide fantasy, I think, happens to most responsible adults. (laughs) And nobody's comfortable admitting that. But if you are a responsible adult, and you worry appropriately about the shit that has to get done in a day, At one point in your life, you may say, man, I could just jump off a bridge or man, I could just shoot myself. But you don't mean it. You have no plan. It's probably your sarcastic or dry sense of humor. However, I do put you on the spectrum at that moment because that's when subconsciously you just are now consciously, right? Subconscious is moving to conscious that you're overwhelmed. You're noticing that there's something about life here that doesn't feel that great. So that suicidal fantasy we can discuss and talk about, and I've certainly helped and addressed that with many first responders. But I find myself talking about suicide the most at the second level. So the second level I call passive suicide ideation. This is when you're most likely to tell me that you've been thinking about death a whole lot more and it bothers you that you're thinking about death, which is a good thing that it's bothering you. And you might say something like, man, I know I could shoot myself. I know I could hang myself. I know I could die of CO poisoning relatively fast. And it's a scary thought to even be going through those options. But again, I find that this is when you are most likely to talk to me about it. And so I want to share that with you. And there is no hospitalization. We can talk about it. I can help that. We can work through it. Now, the third level is more dangerous. And the third level is when I experience, you know, first responders telling me what happened in hindsight. So they're not going to tell me before and they're not going to tell me during. But I call this third level suicide ideation. And this is when they're seriously contemplating. They have picked a method. They have a time. They might say, I'll wait till after Christmas. I don't want to ruin my kids Christmas. Or they'll say something like, you know, I'll wait until this point, or if one more thing happens, the straw that that breaks the camel's back, if that happens, then I'm definitely doing this. And many times they get through that on their own. And I think that's very sad because it's a very difficult place to be when you're in suicide ideation. But it's usually later because you scare yourself so much and you're so scared to be hospitalized that you kind of wait, get yourself together, go to counseling and say, well, three months ago or six months ago, this is where I was at. And so if you're feeling that right now, uh, there's a part of me that really wants to urge you to talk to a counseling professional. We can be very, very helpful. And it doesn't always amount to a hospitalization. It may amount to one or two therapies a week. You know, until you get stable. And it may result in a hospitalization if you are adamant about killing yourself. But my hope is that you ask for that help. Now, what about the fourth level? The fourth level is suicidal. Now, a lot of chiefs, police, and fire chiefs have called and said, How do we stop the suicides from happening? Do you have a checklist, Sarah? Is there something that we can look for? What are the signs and symptoms? And you're going to hear about signs and symptoms in every podcast that I talk, you know, for or in. Uh, Suicidal people do not let you know that they are suicidal because they want to complete that suicide. And suicide is a type of murder, So in my mind, I think about hot-blooded murders and cold-blooded murders. And if you are a hot-blooded suicide, you may not have known that you were going to die that day. You didn't know that you were going to die that week. Maybe you were unstable. Maybe you were very overwhelmed and stressed out. But a hot-blooded suicide is very reactive. It's very emotional. And the reason we can't stop a hot-blooded suicide is because they're going so fast And they're being so reactive that by the time we knew they were in danger, they were too far away or they had already killed themselves. And so this is extremely sad. But I need you to know about these two different types of suicide that that I categorize in my mind. So what is a cold-blooded suicide? Cold-blooded is calculated. It was well thought out. It was planned. The person seems fine. We can't catch up to them or stop them. And they end up completing the suicide because they just planned and they hit it so well. So this is when we're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. Or "I I knew he was going through this, but I didn't think he would do that. And so these are the different levels of suicide that I noticed in first responder land. And I want you to think about where have you been on that scale? And of course, talk to a counseling professional about it. But... I also want to talk about the high-risk factors. So there is a suicidologist out of Florida. His name is Dr. Joyner. And he talks about four high-risk factors. One of them is isolation. So he talks about if you are someone who isolates as a coping skill, that's a high-risk factor. Of course, first responders isolate all the time, whether it's the the hole-in-the-wall bar or the basement or the garage, You know, Or the wife is like, when are you coming home? And you're like, never, I'm not coming home. (laughs) That isolation is dangerous. Not funny. But what about the second high risk factor, which is burden, right? If you think that you're a burden, if you say things like, I am 911, I'm not asking for help. I don't want to bother you with my problems. I don't want to talk to you about my issues. I don't want to bore you with my feelings um, that's, that's a high risk factor. You are not a burden. You help a bunch of people and you deserve the help in return. In fact, you need to start getting used to being helped in return. Um, but that's, that's an ego issue that we'll be talking about. The third high risk factor, of course, is being a thrill seeker. When you run toward gunfire and you run toward burning buildings, you have this ability to set the danger, the risk, the the scary feelings to the back of the mind or the back burner and you're going to go forward. And so unfortunately that can translate to just do it. Just pull the trigger. Put a baggie over your head, hook a hose to the exhaust and uh, it'll happen faster. And I hate to say really explicit things like that but I know that you are listening and that this is the candid and very um real reality that we're facing is that unfortunately you know how to tie those knots and you know how to complete the suicide so we have to look at that thrill seeking edge that will work against you it works for you in the job it'll work against you in your personal life now the fourth high risk factor is the ability and the means to do it so like i was just talking about you have the gun you have the ammunition you have the rope you know how to tie the knot um All those things, having the ability, the means, being a thrill seeker, thinking that you're a burden, isolating as a coping skill, are definitely going to work against you and we have to start talking about that more explicitly. Now, what's going to help you? In my opinion, you could take medication, you can go to counseling, you can go to group, you know, you can ask for peer support. But the thing that seems to be the most helpful is love. And you might think that that's cheesy, but if you can love someone else and they love you back, which usually results in you loving yourself a lot more, that mutuality and reciprocity in the relationship that exchanges love and gratitude and a sense of appreciation and you have value, that is going to protect you more than anything, not only from suicide, but from depression, anxiety, anxiety. And suffering from trauma, and I am sure some other therapists may disagree, or they might want to inject, uh, you know, inject another idea, on what would help. But I really want you to understand that relationships are significantly important; that those need to be your priorities. When we look at the statistics for first responder suicides, uh, we see that there are a lot of relationship issues. It is not oh, this call traumatized me, although those have definitely been at the root of some suicides. It's the statistics that say it's the state of their personal life, their relationships, and love. So let's also talk about the different types of trauma. So the different types of trauma include what I would call present-day triggers and old points of disturbance. So this is an EMDR language. So if you notice that something is triggering you constantly, I want you to realize that that's a a trigger to trauma, which I would call an old point of disturbance. So, for example, if the chief walks in the room and you get irritated and frustrated and you just start to feel all this anger and it's not just about him or her. Sometimes what's subconsciously or very consciously going on is they remind you of an old person in the past, right? Or a person in the past, not necessarily old. Um, Or let's say you go on a call, and it very unexpectedly triggered you. So that's a present day event. And maybe what happened here, you know, you're responding, let's say, to a dive team call and there's a drowning and you're recovering the body, but there's an old point of disturbance where your friend drowned uh, when you were teenagers or something like this. That would be a present day trigger to an old point of disturbance and your normal coping skills are failing. It's hitting you in a developmental way, which means your past or in your childhood It's affecting you maybe in an attachment way, which maybe it's affecting or triggering a relationship issue, or it's affecting and triggering you in an existential way. An existential is just, you know, being an existent in this world. So if you exist, you're going to deal with um, points of disturbance and present day triggers and things like that. So... This is where we start to identify trauma and how it's filed in your brain and what's going on with you. And I will talk more about that when I discuss EMDR in the podcast. But I want to move on to the idea of acute stress disorder which is basically post-traumatic stress disorder within a month's time. So if within 30 days you have all the symptoms of PTSD, you have had acute stress disorder. And I'm going to explain what those symptoms are in just a moment. But for the most part, I know that most first responders are always in recovery of acute stress disorder. And you do recover. You might have a bad call. It takes you two, three days, maybe a couple weeks. But eventually you kind of find your normal again and you move on. The point being is that first responders experience acute stress disorder fairly often. So what are the signs and symptoms of PTSD? Uh, Number one, it has to be a life-threatening event. It's either witnessed or it's personal, so it could be your life or their life, and it's all based on your perspective, it's subjective. So if someone else says, well, that wasn't life-threatening, it doesn't matter. If you think it was a life-threatening event, then this is the first criteria for PTSD. The second is that you have these intrusive thoughts about it. So you're in the hamster wheel, even though you don't want to be thinking about what happened or this particular memory or incident, you just keep finding your mind going back to it over and over. So that's an intrusive thought. And then, of course, there's avoidance attempts. When you're trying to avoid the memory or the intrusive thinking but it's just not working so we have life-threatening event intrusive thoughts avoidance attempts when that doesn't work the fourth criteria is you get negative cognitions and cognitions can be thoughts feelings body sensations ideas and it starts to affect who you are and how you feel so of course that negativity could lead to what we call hyperarousal. And hyperarousal is when you you're jumpy about it. And you could be jumpy about it in your own way. There's many ways that we can be um triggered. So I just want you to notice if yeah, when I hear that kind of call or when I notice this type of present day trigger, this is the response in my mind and my body about it. That response or that reaction could very well be hyperarousal. Now, one thing that I want to be very specific about is that there's something called qualifier in diagnosing PTSD. And in my experience over all this time, I think that there is more PTSD with delayed onset than there is PTSD with just immediately, you know, that happens acutely. And I think the reason for that, as far as I can tell, is that you are willing to compartmentalize all your feelings and you're going to set everything aside to get the job done. And then when you get back to the station, that's when you notice what's going on. And if it's not back at the station, maybe it's when you get home from shift. And if it's not then, maybe it's a couple weeks later or even months later. And of course, I have a lot to say about policy with that, but I'm going to put that on hold and just say this example. I had a guy come in and tell me, man, here's my trauma. I said, oh my gosh, when did this happen? He said, 10 years ago, Sarah. And I said, why did you wait 10 years to talk about this? And his answer made so much sense to me. He said, Sarah, my wife was pregnant with twins. I just bought a house. I just got off probation. There is no way that I was going to talk about that call. I wasn't going to let anyone know that it bothered me. And so this particular guy, like many others, waited and waited and waited until his mind thought it was safe, right? And he thought it was safe 10 years later to talk about that trauma. And again, when it comes to policy, we don't acknowledge that. All the policy is written just for physical health issues. So if you get physically hurt on the job, you have something like 24 hours or less to report it. Um, But if you twist an ankle, you know you twisted your ankle and you can report it with psychological issues, sometimes our brain doesn't allow us to realize that we have felt and experienced post-traumatic stress disorder until way later in our lives. And so this is a very difficult policy to talk about, but like I said, I'll have a podcast about that too. In the meantime, I want to move on to the next vocabulary word, which is vicarious trauma. I want you to understand that this is a distress reaction experienced because of exposure to trauma and you change somehow forever because of it. And so I usually use my motorcycle as an example. So I ride a motorcycle. I don't wear a helmet. I love this thing. I don't do ride-alongs in the summer, which sounds really selfish because if the tones drop, you have to go. And I don't, I wouldn't want to go on a motorcycle crash because, once again, I don't want to wear a helmet and I don't want to sound like a first responder, and first responders sometimes say, "Yes, yeah, sir. I saw this crash and I sold my bike or I saw this incident and I changed and I, you know, I wear a helmet now or whatever. And I totally understand that. Let's not send me any emails about helmets. <laughs> but I want you to think about a vicarious trauma that you may have experienced. What was a call that changed you forever? Because you empathized and you had a distress reaction because of it. And whatever that is, we call that vicarious trauma. And I need you to know that vocabulary term. And of course, when we have potentially traumatic events and we have that sickness and we have old points of disturbance getting triggered in the present day, what do I see first responders doing? They trauma bond. Instead of pure support, instead of a culture of listening, validating, relating, and referring so that someone can get supportive help, what I get is or what I witnessed is trauma bonding, you experience something traumatic, it gets tied to the relationship you have with someone, something or some time. And we could just look at your funerals for this, right? How do you trauma bond in a funeral, you get the bells and whistles out, the honor guard shows up, you were your class A's, we have the engines, the trucks, you know, the squads out or whatever it is. And there's this huge bonding moment, right? In that negativity in that death. Or we take a look at how you respond to your own um, birthday in contrast to that, right? You'll tell me I'll go to this golf outing because it's, you know, a memorial activity or I'm going to go to this grave site and we're going to do a shot because it's the anniversary of someone's death. But my birthday, no, we're not going to celebrate that. I don't celebrate my birthday. So this is just a quick example to highlight how you guys will trauma bond before you do peer support you will bond in negativity before you will allow yourself to be happy. And sometimes it even amounts to, oh, you know what? I see this nurse. I see this nurse in the ER. Never really thought anything of her after this terrible call. Holy crap, she's kind of cute. And boom, before you know it, you're having an affair. <laughs> you're like, what am I doing? I'm married. I have kids. She's married. I She has kids. Uh, what are we doing? There's trauma bonding in the negativity. Um, we also trauma bond by joking around. And sometimes when it goes too far and it's not funny anymore, that's another trauma bonding activity. Or when you've been in a fire with someone and you just look at them and you're like, man, we don't even have to talk about it. We connect. We connect through this terrible call. I would love for you to instead communicate. I would rather you listen, validate, relate to one another, start referring if you need the help instead of just holding on to the trauma. So what happens when we don't do that, when we don't do peer support and we're bonding in negativity, I see a lot of empath fatigue. So an empath is someone that has empathy for others. They can put themselves in other people's shoes. And sometimes in our culture and society right now, we, we think empaths are just a wonderful thing. And in many ways they are. But I see the empathy, empathy in first responder land as codependent fatigue. And codependency is when you take care of the needs, the wants, the preferences of everyone else except for yourself, and you drain yourself this way. It's emotionally exhausting. And when you are constantly experiencing the trauma of other people, that's that human illness, human death, human suffering, human stupidity, property destruction, you're going to get emotionally exhausted from that. So if you have codependency fatigue, that's another reason maybe to ask for some help or to do some reading or self-help in some way so that you are not so fatigued by life. The other type of fatigue is compassion fatigue. And this is when you emotionally get exhausted from the constant demands of helping and caring for other people. So maybe it's not that you are you won't meet your own needs, wants, and preferences. It's just that you are constantly uh, taking care of other people. It's part of being a provider or a parent or a spouse and a first responder. It's almost like no matter where you go, somebody needs something from you. And so we need breaks from that. And compassion fatigue isn't unique to just first responders. Doctors, nurses, therapists even can feel compassion fatigue. And so I want you to think about this. I was teaching once, and a firefighter said to me, you know, Sarah, a construction worker is going to swing their hammer for 20 plus years. And if he doesn't get calluses on his hands, he's not going to be able to do his job. So this is all I have. I kind of got like this mental callus going on. And I thought, oh, man, I've got mental calluses from working with first responders. <laughs> I get it. I'm I'm such a different person. In in many ways, I'm not the same therapist as I was 10 years ago, even five years ago, or one year ago, we certainly do change. And if you have some mental calluses from working in the first responder world, I get it. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. However, if you squeeze those handcuffs on a little bit tighter because you're sick and tired of shit, or if you look like you can kick your patient out of the back of the ambulance, like, boom, there you are. Here's the hospital. <laughs> uh That's empath fatigue, compassion fatigue, and of course, a major sign that you are overwhelmed and burnt out. So let's talk about burnout for a second. Burnout is the breakdown of your willingness and your ability to perform your job duties because of overwhelming stress. So two major words in burnout, willingness and ability. If you are losing your willingness to do the job, that means you are losing your ability to do the job. And nobody likes to admit that. People think, well, I only have five years left. I should be fine, right? Well, but you're in the higher risk pool, right, for not having the ability to do your job in the best way possible. So I think that this is pretty dangerous. I also think it's very sad because you start this career so proud of yourself. There's so much ambition. I mean, the family's proud of you. You are proud of you. It's a really cool thing to become a first responder. But then something happens. And that something that happens goes on once again for a 20 plus year long career. And then if we look like we have totally burnt you out by the end of the career, we have done something wrong. Because we should increase your level of functioning, not take things away from you. And yet a lot of guys will tell me, oh, Sarah, this job took a lot from me. Or they'll say, you want to see my retirement clock? Look at this. I got this many months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, seconds left. And then I'm out of here. And I don't want a retirement cake. And I don't want a picture. And I don't want to ride home in the engine or whatever it is. I just want done. I want out. And that's sad because you couldn't wait to get in. And now you're counting down days to get out. And I want you to feel integrity in retirement, not despair, which in another podcast, I will definitely be talking about that as well. Now, I want to cover a couple more things and then I need to, you know, wrap up this podcast. I don't I don't want to lose anybody. I feel like, you know, talking for hours on end could be bad, even though I would talk for hours. But what happens when we have all of this stuff going on that I just mentioned? The relationships start to suffer. Okay? Pain is inevitable. Suffering is an option. We can eliminate a lot of suffering. But what's happening in the relationships is we get a lot of ball busting, which can be fun. But sometimes what happens is that ball busting turns into this offensive behavior, and it feels like a betrayal. You know, a lot of times you're in the in crowd, or you're not in the click in the first responder world. And that's difficult. If you are being bullied, and if you are the bully, you're miserable. And you know, when there's this kind of extreme, like you're liked or you have a target on your back and you're trying to go to work and do everything that I just talked about, this is highly stressful. So, this is why I always emph- emphasize how are the relationships doing? A lot of you will be very, very busy. You don't prioritize love, you prioritize your career, you prioritize the first responder experience. After training, you're going for drinks, maybe. There's these weekend we- or weekend golf outings. You have nights out with the guys. There's extra teams and trainings that you're going to. If you're studying for an exam, you're totally unavailable. <laughs> that's the year or six months of your life where the whole family is going through your exam that's coming up. And we need to be focused again on the relationships um many are and many want to be a good parent, a good spouse, a good protector and a good provider. But I want you to ask yourself, are you crabby? <laughs> are you angry? Are you delusional about how often you're around? Um do we need to protect the family from you? Sometimes this happens with first responders. And so again, we'll be talking about how all of this stuff at work can affect your personal life and your personal life is your priority. I understand you have to protect your bread and butter or your hobbies and your personal interests. However, you have to start with relationship with self and then the relationships with your family of creation and even your family of origin, you know, your extended family. But sometimes no matter how much a first responder sees him or herself as the most giving person in the family, sometimes the family's feedback doesn't match up to that. And each person has their own perspective and experience. And it's really important to communicate kindly with your family members and listen to them and digest the feedback about yourself. So that's another thing that I see happening because of first responder jobs. Now, if any of this was sort of triggering or you're wondering, okay, maybe I do need counseling. I want you to go on the internet and type in psychology today. They have a program that will pop up. It says, find a therapist. And you can type in your zip code wherever you're at across the United States. And therapists will pop up in that search. And then you can filter it further. I would suggest filter it by insurance, whether or not you want a male or female therapist, I would definitely select an EMDR therapist or choose the specialty area. So you can filter it by depression, anxiety, addiction, relationship issues, trauma, whatever it is. And you might only get two or three therapists to pop up. But at least you narrowed it down to two or three therapists in your area that you could possibly talk to. And the other thing I want to mention is meditation. If some of this stuff, you know, was triggering or you were relating to it at all, and you don't meditate, I would love for you to try it. There's many apps that you can download on your phone for free. And I love Insight Timer. Insight Timer uh, is the meditation app that I started with. But there is another one called Headspace that a lot of first responder clients of mine love. They said Headspace was easier or it was helpful in teaching them how to meditate They loved the reminders that popped up, and then they would meditate for two minutes, sometimes 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, I noticed another one that came out called MindFit, and some people who were very driven by science and outcomes, they they love MindFit. So I want you to try meditation, but I also want you to realize this is not about stopping your thoughts. It is not about changing your thoughts. It's not about... Avoiding, minimizing, or distracting yourself, right, from the reality. Meditation is actually just about noticing. And so if you are going to turn your timer on and meditate for the first time, sometimes it's kind of painful and difficult, right? It's not very comfortable at all. The first time I meditated, I was like, oh my gosh, is that the contents of my thoughts? Like, is this what I'm going to have to deal with? Yes, that's what I had to deal with. But I just want you to notice, if you're already meditating and you have been meditating, continue. But again, if it's your first time, realize that meditation can be very uncomfortable at first, but just notice that. And that's where we'll start uh, with talking about meditation. I, what I want to do right now, though, is just thank everyone for listening to this First Responder Psychological Support podcast And again, my name is Sarah Gura. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor in uh, Burridge, Illinois at the Self-Care Path. And I'm going to sign off the same way I did for the first podcast, which is do life so it doesn't do you. (laughs) And take good care of yourself. Stay very safe. And the next podcast, I'm going to be focusing on all the individual signs and symptoms that happen because of some of the things I talked about today. So we'll be going over thoughts, feelings, physiological responses, social responses, and spiritual responses or reactions to the different types of trauma and experiences that first responders have. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.